What you just got there was a picture of a new shift in the sermon series. If you've been tracking along with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we started with the triumphal entry, and there was a sense of, could this guy be King Jesus? No one quite knew. There was debate. But today is going to be the turn of the tide when they determine it's time to kill him. And uh, I'm going to get there in just a second. But before I, I get to that part of the message, I really have to help you understand where you are and who you are to appreciate what Jesus is about to teach. I have a question for you. Have you guys ever blamed somebody or some other people for something and then turn around the end and realize that it was actually your fault, not theirs? Any, any of you have that problem before? About 12 of us in this room. The rest of you are saints in here. I remember this pretty poignantly, um, poignantly in my life when I, I got to experience that. So it was, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I remember I had been outside doing some yard work and I, I came inside and I was going to the kitchen to get a glass of water and, uh, and I smelled something when I, I walked into the kitchen and it smelled pretty rancid, almost like, like nasty milk or something. I got a lot of kids. Immediately, my mind went to, great. One of my kids got their little sippy cup with their milk and like hid it in a cabinet or something. Now it's gone sour and stinking up the whole house. And so I'm, I'm like in the kitchen, opening up cabinets, looking for it, smelling around. I can smell it, but I, I don't see anything. And I, I open up every cabinet in the kitchen, nothing. So I'm, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's somewhere else. So I, I go into our utility room and I'm sniffing around over there and I can smell it, but it, it's not there. And I I go into our, our dining room, and I can still smell it, but it's not there. And I'm, I'm now into my living room, and I'm sniffing around going, what in the world? But at this point now, the smell, uh, it's getting a little more uh, concentrated. And I realize it's not like sour milk. It smells like, like doggy do. And now i got to tell you, we had two dogs at the time, and one of them had uh, GI issues and would, like, lose control uh, of her, her BM sometimes. So it wasn't, like, terribly inconceivable. So now I'm looking for the bomb somewhere in the house. Like it's somewhere and I got to find it. So I'm, I'm walking through the living room and I'm, I can smell it, but I don't see it. Like this sucker must be huge. I go over to the hallway in the bedroom. I'm sniffing around and I can't find it anywhere. And I'm still going like, how is this permeating the whole house? And all of a sudden I went, ah, oh, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. I look at my foot and there's a massive dog bomb right there on the bottom of my foot. I had stepped on in the backyard, didn't even know it, and I'm literally spreading it all over the house. My poor wife right there was going, why did I marry this guy? Who in the world? She lovingly made me clean it all up uh, until it was gone, which was a project because it was all surfaces <laughs> that it was on. It was, it was so interesting because, like, up to that moment, I'm blaming my dogs, I'm blaming my kids, I'm blaming everybody except me. But until I realized I was a problem, I couldn't fix it. So that disgustingly and perfectly illustrates so often how you and I live life. We have a problem and we blame everybody else around it and it never gets fixed because we don't realize we're the problem. It's us. Jesus, he talked about this, by the way. I don't know if you remember this teaching, but he said, you hypocrites, you're so worried about the little fleck of wood in somebody else's eye and you don't even see the two by four sticking out of your own eye. It's like, why don't you take the two-by-four out, two out first, and then you might be able to see that little fleck of, of dirt or wood in that other person's eye. We're so busy looking at the problems of everybody else, we don't see our own gargantuan problems. And Jesus needs to teach us something really important. Until we go to the root cause, we're never going to be able to solve the problem. And the root is not a smell on our shoe, it's sin in our heart. 
And Jesus wants us to deal with the root. He's going to do that this morning as we continue on in the journey in Luke 22. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. Always encourage you to bring a Bible with you. Make sure you at least have it on your phone. We're going to be in Luke 22. Now, while you're finding Luke 22, let me go ahead and come back to what I was saying about the shift of sermon series. So we have been in this season right now where you could see the debate. The religious leader is trying to take Jesus down, but the people are enthralled with him, and he keeps shutting down the religious leaders. But there came a moment when everything began to shift, and that's, that's the moment right now. When it went from questioning, is he the Messiah, to now we're able to kill him. And what you're going to discover is that the real enemy wasn't somebody outside of them. It was somebody inside the group. Many of you are familiar with the story. It's Luke 22, beginning in verse 1. Let's read the first six verses. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and he agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And that right there was the beginning of the end for Jesus. This was the moment they could get him. See, before that, it said they wanted to kill Jesus, but they couldn't because they feared the crowd. There were way too many people who were enthralled with Jesus that if they tried to do something to Jesus or to incarcerate him or something, the crowd would have been in a full-blown riot, and they knew it. So the only time they could take Jesus down was to catch him when the crowd wasn't there, probably at night. But here's the problem. Nobody knew where Jesus was going to go or what he was going to do. Not even the disciples. Jesus carried that information close to his vest. They got it real time when he told them, okay, now do this, now do this, now we're going here. And therefore, nobody knew where he was going to be, and they couldn't capture him until one of his own, who found out where they were going to be, decided to betray Jesus and let the authorities know. And that's when they were able to get to him. I want you to stop and consider this. This is, this is something that struck me as I was studying this passage. All of hell was arrayed against Jesus, and they could not find a way to kill him. All of human power, the greatest of the religious authorities, wanted Jesus dead, and they could not find a way to kill him. It wasn't until one of his own friends turned on him that they found a way to kill him. You know what this tells me? The greatest enemy of the church aren't the atheists out there, aren't the political leaders out there, aren't all. The greatest enemy of the church is the wolf in sheep's clothing right here among us. I think we learned that from this guy Judas. Jesus calls him, handpicks him, loves on him, shares his life with him. And after three years, he betrays Jesus and turns his back on him for 30 stinking pieces of silver. How about that for friendship? Now, I know we could be really hard on Judas, and I want to I caution us, because there's a lot about Judas that you need to know before you start throwing stones. What you've got to understand is Judas was a very confused man. He had signed up to follow the Messiah with a very clear picture in his mind of who the Messiah was going to be. All the Jews thought this about the Messiah. He was going to be the one who was going to rise up, a warrior king, who was going to rally the religious leaders together under his banner, and they were going to go conquer Rome, overthrow them, and take back the promised land. He was going to be a mighty leader, and Judas wanted to be right beside the Messiah when he overthrew Rome. But then all of a sudden, things start turning. Jesus isn't acting like a military leader at all. He's like lowly and humble. He's taking a back seat. He's being attacked, and he's not attacking back. 
biggest thing of all is he sees the religious leaders, instead of like coming under Jesus' banner, they're fighting against him and want him dead. And Judas can see all this with his own eyes. And he arrives at a conclusion. Holy moly, I've picked the wrong Messiah. Now, you may not know this, but up to this moment, there had already been a number of false messiahs. And every single one of them had been killed along with all of their followers. So now here's Judas Iscariot, and he's looking at the landscape, and he's seeing the religious, religious leaders turn against Jesus, and he's going, oh, no, I did it. I followed a false messiah. He's about to die, and we're all going to die with him. He's incredibly confused, and he's scared. And what he's just trying to do right now is save his own tail. Now, I want us to be really cautious. We can get real mean on Judas, and we can wake up one day and look in the mirror and see Judas staring right back at us. Because I want you to understand there were three things that made Judas Judas, and I think these three things are going to sound real familiar. First thing you know about Judas is he was just incredibly selfish. The whole reason why he wanted to hitch his wagon to the Jesus horse is because he wanted to be there with the power. He wanted to be in the mix of it. The reason he abandons Jesus is because he thinks Jesus is not going to have power, and he's in it for himself. He's selfish. Quick question. You don't have to raise your hand. Any of you in here ever struggle with selfishness? Uh, There's one person who said no over here. That's going to be dangerous. All right, rest of us, uh, probably so. Second thing that you see about Judas Iscariot, he struggled with an intense desire to control his destiny. He was one of those kind of people that said, hey, man, ain't nobody else going to make my future. I got to make it for myself. Pull myself up by my bootstraps, work hard. I'm going to make my future. This is what you see him doing. He realizes now that the religious leaders are turned against him. He's going, how do I get off this Jesus train because it's going down? How do I save my future? I know what I can do. I can go to the religious leaders. I can give them Jesus, and I'll be in their good graces. And I can make an extra 30 shekels of silver to boot. He's just trying to control his destiny. Again, you don't have to raise your hand. Any of you in here struggle with control? I'm guessing there's a few of you. Third thing Judas Iscariot does is he does not fight against the temptation of the enemy and ends up giving the enemy a seat at his table. It's really interesting the way it words it. You know, you you saw that passage at the uh, beginning of verse 3. It says, Satan entered into Judas. There's a whole lot of debate, by the way, about what that means that he entered into Judas. But all all the commentators, as I study this passage, agree that it's not demon possession the way you naturally think of. Because when somebody's demon possessed, they lose their ability to think and, and, and operate correctly. They like throw themselves into fires and they live out in tombs and they're, it would be what today we would call psychotic behavior. That's, that's somebody who's demon possessed. That's not the way Judas is acting. He's not, he's not demon possessed, but it's also more than just being tempted by Satan because there's scriptures that talk about being tempted, but this says that Satan entered. And what most of the scholars believe this is referring to is the fact that you can give the devil undue influence in you if you don't resist him. There's a passage in the book of James that says, resist the devil and he must flee from you. But the adverse of that is true as well. If you do not resist the devil, he doesn't flee from you. He parks right at your table and he has influence. So I'm just curious, any of you in this room, again, you don't have to raise your hand, any of you in this room, any of you watching online, you ever had a moment where you didn't resist Satan's work in you and maybe gave him a little too much influence in your life? Because my guess is 100% of us would have to say, yep, That's me. I don't know, but I think the vast majority of us are shooting three for three in this thing right now. We throw a rock at Judas, we're going to see a whole bunch of them flying right back at us. 
I think it's incredibly important that you and I understand who we are in this story. We're not Jesus. We're not the good guy. We're not the hero. We're Judas. We're there with him. And until you understand that we are positionally, because of our own sin and rebellion, right there with Judas, we will not understand the magnitude of what Jesus is about to do. He is about to serve a table with the very person he knows is about to betray him. It's important you realize what kind of Savior Jesus is if you want to seat at that table too. We'll keep on reading what happens next. Verse 7. Moves on. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, two, two little details I want to point out in what we just read right there. The first detail is this. It is obvious that Jesus is calling all the shots right now. He is in perfect control of what is taking place. It's really important because there's a theme in this whole book in the Old Testament that you need to understand. No one took Jesus' life. He willingly gave it up. He wasn't somebody trapped and murdered. He was a lamb who willingly walked to the slaughter. He's in control of all the details. That's exactly what's going on here. He says, all right, the, the disciples, they have no clue what's going on because like I said before, Jesus has only given them minute by minute instructions of what's next and what's next and what, what's next. They know they're gonna need to eat the Passover. So they go, hey, buddy, wh where do we go? What do we do? And Jesus says to Peter and John, all right, here's what you're gonna do. Go into the city of Jerusalem. And when you go in, there's like millions of people. When you go in, you're going to find a dude carrying a jar of water. When you see him, tell him the teacher needs the room. Where should we go? Now, you may be going like, how in the world are they going to find like the one right person? Well, here's something I never thought of before, but <clears throat> as I was studying this passage, uh, what made this so conspicuous is that men never carried jars of water. Women were the ones who carried the jars of water. So it'd be super rare to see a dude carrying a jar of water, but Jesus designed it that way. So he'd be easy to spot. So Peter and John walk in, masses of people, because they're there for the Passover, looking like, where, 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 oh, there's a dude carrying the water. They walk up to him. And sure enough, he says, everything's prepared. Why? Because Jesus had, had put everything in order. He is in charge. He is choosing right now his steps as he goes to what he knows is coming next. Now, to know that Jesus is in control of the situation here is important because it also tells you he knows what this signifies when he does what he's about to do with them. It says back in verse uh, 7, I believe it is, that the day of unleavened bread, which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. He is very intentionally choosing the day when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed to grab his disciples to share the meal he's about to share with them. And it's clear why. He is correlating who he is with the Passover lamb. Now, I know there are many of you who are familiar with the story, but I also know there are many of you who perhaps don't know Passover and what that's talking about in the lamb and so we, we could go back and read it, but I'm just going to summarize for you uh, Exodus 12. You can go back and read it later. But basically, the history is the Israelites, they are slaves in the land of Egypt. Egypt has been oppressing them. Pharaoh has been oppressing them. God raises up Moses, gives them 10 plagues. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn son. And so God says all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians are going to die. And he says to the Israelites, there's going to be a destroyer angel who's going to come through the camp to do it. And if you want your house to be safe... Here's what you got to do. you got to slaughter a lamb at twilight, 
You got to take a hyssop branch. You got to dip it in the blood. You got to put it on the doorpost and the lintel of your house. And when you do that, the destroyer angel is going to come. He's going to see the blood and he will pass over your house and you won't experience the destruction coming upon the land. That's the Passover. That's what he's talking about. Now, Jesus is choosing this moment to say very clearly, guys, you're about to witness the true sacrifice of the true Passover lamb. It's me. And my blood has the power to save you, you rebels, from the destruction that you deserve. He's putting the two together, which is why immediately he goes into what we now call the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the last supper he's going to have with the disciples. He set the stage. Now he's going to give them one of the last teaching moments. So let's keep on reading. We're going to be reading on into verse 14. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, we're going to stop there. We'll finish up in a moment. So they're having the meal right now, which is what we would call the Seder meal. Uh, Brother Rick Weintraub and his family have led us many years in taking to the Seder meal as we get into Holy Week. All the elements of it, very, very meaningful to the Jewish people. There are four different cups of wine that you drink, and he talks about there's two different cups and there's bread sandwiched in the middle. That first cup of wine, the one that he distributes, is the second cup. Then they have the meal with the bread, and then you have the third cup. And the ones that he was talking about, do this in remembrance of me, are the meal with the bread in the middle and then the third cup. And so I, I think as we follow along with Jesus, he wants us to understand what he was teaching his disciples, and this is where you're going to need the Lord's Supper elements. So I'd love for you to grab those uh, if you grab those when you're coming in. By the way, if you're watching online and you, you have the Lord's Supper elements, now's the time to get it because we're going to take it right in the middle of the message. Now, I, I want you to know this right here is for believers in Jesus Christ. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you not to take it because this is just a symbol of your ongoing commitment to Christ. The first move is baptism. That's your, that's your commitment to Christ that's publicly displayed. If you haven't taken that step, I strongly encourage you to pray through that. I'll, I'll tell you more about that later in the service, but you might have an opportunity to do that today. But for those of you who have already taken that step of faith, I want you to grab And if you don't have it, don't worry. We take it every week. You'll have another chance to get it. But I want you to open the bottom part where that little piece of bread is. And, and don't eat it yet. I want you just to hold it in your hand for a moment. I want, you to, I want you to notice the piece of bread. It's intentionally hard, crunchy. It's unleavened bread. And in a moment, you're going to put it in your mouth, and you're going to pierce it, and you're going to crush it with your teeth. And Jesus was very specific. The, the bread, that, the matzah bread that he had was just like this. It was hard. It was crusty. It would have pierced. It would have broken. It would have crushed in people's mouths. And I want you to see what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us. So you can keep your place in Luke 22, but I want to read Isaiah 53. Many of you are familiar with this passage, verses 4 and 5. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. I want you to notice what 
Isaiah is talking about when he's mentioning the suffering servant. He's saying he was, he was pierced, not for somebody out there's transgressions, our transgressions. We can't blame anybody else. We have to look and say, I'm the problem. They're, they're my transgression. Transgression means rebellion. When, when we rebelled against God, it was our transgressions that caused him to be pierced. It was our iniquities. Iniquities is to do wrong when you know what is right. God lays out his law and says, obey this. And we say, nah, I got my own way. That's iniquity. He was crushed for our iniquities. In a moment, you're going to put this in your mouth. And I encourage you, using your incisors, to pierce it. And to know, I'm piercing him right now because it was my transgressions that pierced him. Not the person sitting next to me, not the person who harmed me, me. And then you're going to move it back into your molars and you're going to start to grind it. You're going to crush it. And when you do that, you are remembering it was your iniquities that caused him to be crushed. You're going to own the weight of the fact that it is our sin that did this to him. So let's take this in remembrance of Christ. Amen. Now I want you to open the cup. And when you open the cup, I want to remind you, obviously intended, the fruit of the vine to look like blood. And Jesus, in Luke 22, when he's talking, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus uses very precise language here because he's trying to tell them what he's doing. When he says, this cup is poured out, that phrase in Greek right there, poured out, is the same, if you were to use the Hebrew uh, cognate of it, that, that word will be the same word used in the temple for animal sacrifice. When you sacrifice an animal, you poured out its blood upon the altar. It's the same, same word used. Jesus is very intentionally getting their minds to the sacrificial system. And what he's trying to say is there has been a whole sacrificial system built on the blood of bulls and goats, but I'm about to shift it. And it's my blood poured out. And there will be a new covenant and a new system based not on the blood of animals, but on my own blood. I want you, if you can, to flip to, keep your place in Luke 22, but flip over to Hebrews 9. I want to read verses 13 to 14. Because the author here tells us what's going on. Verse 13 of Hebrews 9 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... In other words, if the old sacrificial system can purify the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's saying if the blood of bulls and goats was effective to cleanse our flesh, how much more effective will the perfect blood from the perfect Lamb of God completely purify us, not just on the outside, but the inside? All sins forgiven and forgotten. That's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. This is the better covenant. Let's take this in remembrance of him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. So he's had this poignant moment now with his disciples. As he's trying to teach them, he knows exactly what's coming. He knows his body's going to be crucified. He knows that his blood is going to be shed. But he ends on an interesting note. I'm sure they were all curious, like, oh, man, what was he even talking about here? And then Jesus decides to make it incredibly awkward. He throws a bomb out there upon them. And I want you to see what the the disciples do in response to what he says next. 
We're going to finish up the passage, Luke 22, verses 21 to 23. It says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So here's the moment now where Jesus throws the bomb. He knows he's about to be betrayed. There's nothing hidden from him. He's fully aware. Now, what's so intriguing to me is that no one knows what he's talking about except one person, Judas Iscariot. I just kind of like wonder in that moment, like what's going through his mind? Oh, dang. Uh, He knows it's me. You wonder what he's thinking, but he doesn't say anything. He's completely silent. There'd be a side you think he might go, I should probably back off. Maybe this dude is something special because he knows, but he doesn't. In fact, if you were to go to the Gospel of John, it says right after this moment, apparently sometime during the Lord's Supper, during the Last Supper, he had told the disciples, after this, we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So now Judas knows the plans, immediately gets up, and he goes out to the religious leaders and the temple guard, and he says, I know where he's about to be. You can get him without the crowd. Jesus tells him that he knows, and Judas still says, peace, I'm out. I mean, that's just, that's just messed up. But I also, I want to take our eyes off of Judas, because there's something else equally messed up going on among the 11 other disciples. There's that, a real interesting verse 23. It says they begin to question one another, wondering who it might be. Do you know what that means? They're questioning each other like, no, nah, dude, it was you. No, nah, it, it might be you over here. Peter's over there going, Bartholomew, I know it's you. With a name like that, it's got to be you. If Philip, maybe, uh, it's going to be James or John. It's going to be one of you people. I know it's not me. In fact, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, they each go like, it's not me, right? Like, you know it's not me, right, Lord? It's not me, right? It's not me, right? Like, they, they are convinced it's not them. And they're blaming everybody. It must be you, must be you, must be you, must be you. I think this is just what I was talking about at the beginning, human nature. We can see the frailty and fault of everybody around us, but we can't see it might be us. Now, here's why I think that's important. Jesus was very precise in his wording. He said, I'm going to be... I'm going to be delivered over to the authorities as it has been determined, as it has been foreordained. He knew that it was set up for him to go to the cross. But woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now, obviously, he's talking about Judas, the one who's going to hand him over. But let me tell you about the word betrayal. It's a lot broader than maybe you think. To be unfaithful to somebody is to betray them. To turn your back on somebody when they need you is to betray them. To abandon them or forsake them is to betray them. i got a question for you. How many of the 12 disciples betrayed Jesus? All 12. In a matter of hours, every single one of them is going to abandon Jesus when he most needs them. They're going to run scared, completely leave His best disciple, number one disciple, Peter, is about to deny even knowing Jesus three times. Like, no, I don't know that dude. I don't know that dude. You want to talk about turning your back on somebody, betraying somebody? All of them did. And yet they were so busy blaming everybody else, they couldn't see the brokenness in their own hearts. And here's why I want, to, I want to tell you that. This room, however many thousand plus people are in this room right now, let me go ahead and tell you, that many people have betrayed Jesus. However many of you watching online right now, every single one of you have had a moment you've betrayed Jesus. 
That's why I said earlier, we better be real careful about throwing stones at Judas. Because we're going to see Judas looking right back at us if we look in the mirror. Every one of us has had moments that we have been unfaithful to King Jesus. We've all had moments when we have abandoned or forsaken Jesus, even though he's never abandoned or forsaken us. We've had moments when we turned our backs on him. Every single one of us. We are no different. And when you understand that, then you understand the real reason why Jesus had to die. It, it wasn't the religious leaders that killed Jesus. It wasn't Pontius Pilate that killed Jesus. It wasn't even Judas that killed Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't even Satan that killed Jesus. You want to know who killed Jesus? We killed Jesus. That's who killed him. There's an incredible song. It's a, a song that talks about the love of the Father. And that song, it has a line in there. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Listen to this line. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know it is finished. It was my sin that held him there. It wasn't Judas's sin. It wasn't the religious leader's sin. It was my sin. The only reason he went to the cross was for me and for you. We have to own that part in his death if we're ever to, if we're ever to really celebrate with power and joy what he's done for us. I, I know hopefully you can see me wearing this cross. In, in a moment, I'm going to challenge you guys to do something. You're going to see some tables. I see some over here on the sides, and there are a few more in the bowl area in the back, and they have a stand with, with crosses like this. Those of you who were here on Wednesday night at the Linton service were able to get your cross. But this is, this is something I'm inviting all of you who would choose to do so. If you're watching online, I know you can't get one, but if you're in the area, next week you can come. We'll still have them available for you. But you're going to go in a moment, if you feel compelled to, to grab one for a very specific reason, to say, I'm carrying on me the reminder that this was supposed to be my cross. I should have died on that cross because I'm the rebellious one, not Jesus. He died in my place. And I wear this not as jewelry to say, hey, I'm a Christian. I wear this as a reminder. It is my cross. It is my fault that he died. And I'm going to encourage you, if you choose to go get one of these crosses, that over the next 40 days, the rest of the Lenten season, all the way up to, to the Good Friday service, that you wear it every single day. And you wear it as a constant reminder it should have been you. And you feel the weight of that, the heaviness of it. And I'm going to encourage you, don't tuck it in your shirt. Wear it out so that every time you bow your head to pray, you see it swing in front of you and you look at it and you remember it should have been you. And as a part of that, what you do is you prepare your heart. There's going to come a moment on the Good Friday service right here when we're gathered together where you're going to see a big old cross on stage and we're going to have a chance to take off that cross and lay it down before him and remember how much he sacrificed for us. But during this Lenten season, I want to encourage you. It's supposed to be a time of personal sacrifice. At the Lenten service, we talked about people who choose to give up things that are meaningful to them during the Lenten season as a reminder of how much more Christ sacrificed in us, that he's worthy of whatever we would give up. But there are two big things I want to encourage you to do. First thing is this. I want to encourage you to make the prayer gatherings a priority during these six weeks. I know that there's a lot of busyness on Wednesday nights, and many of you can't make it. But for these six weeks, I want to encourage you to do everything you can because such an important part of preparation for Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter is prayer. 
And so for these six weeks, make the prayer gathering incredibly important to you to be there to pray. And they'll be designed to help us get ready for Good Friday. Also, I want to challenge you for a second thing. As many of you as would be willing to do this, I want to encourage you to be willing to fast one day a week. What we're going to do together as a church body is on, we're going to fast on Wednesdays. And the way this works is Tuesday night you eat dinner sometime before 8 p.m. And then at 8 p.m. you enter into the fast and you switch over to water only if you can or at least liquid only and no food that you eat. You skip breakfast, you skip lunch, you skip snacks. You come to the prayer gathering at 6.30 and from 6.30 to 8 we pray. And then when the prayer gathering is over to 8 o'clock, the fast is over and you eat. So it's a chance for us to, during the day when we're hungry, to remember Christ. We see our cross and we remember, we go without and we remember how much more he sacrificed for us than we ever could for him. And all this is a way just to prepare our hearts to feel the weight. It was my sin that held him here. I want to be ready to celebrate what Christ has done. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to one of the tables around there to get the cross. Before I do, though, I want to say right here, right now, there's a way for you to worship. We're going to sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love. And as we sing that song, I want you to think about the words. I want you to declare them knowing what Christ has done for you. Let it be meaningful. But also, let me say this. There are some of you here, and I know it, you need prayer today. If ever you should remember the power of prayer, it should be right now. Romans 8.32 says this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things with him? In other words, if the Father gave up his son, he'll give you everything that you need. You just got to come to him. There should be, of any Sunday you come for prayer, it should be this one, when you remember all the Father was willing to give up for you and for me who didn't deserve it. Come receive prayer. There'll be prayer team members down front ready to pray with you. And don't worry, you can come pray first and then go get your cross next. Most importantly, though, and I've been praying hard about this one, I believe there are some of you in this room, some of you watching online, and you are believing a lie of the enemy. And you believe that you have committed the unforgivable sin. You feel like what you've done is just too much. There's no way God could forgive you. God might be able to forgive ordinary people, but not after what I've done. And you're, you're looking at Judas Iscariot and you go, that's me. No, I know that's me. And you're going, well, Judas, he, he never made it back to the Lord. He never, he went off and hanged himself. Like he, he never got right. That's me. That's my story. I've committed the unforgivable sin. Listen, I want you to be real clear about something. Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, did not commit the unforgivable sin. I want you to hear that because there were 11 other disciples who betrayed Jesus too. And they were restored. Even Peter, especially Peter. The one unforgivable sin that Judas committed was never returning to Jesus to ask for forgiveness. That's what blasphemy of the Spirit is, the Word talks about. The only sin that can be forgiven. The, the most heinous sin you can think of, that's not the unforgivable sin. The only thing that's unforgivable is you not coming to Jesus and saying, forgive me for what I've done wrong. I give you myself. And so if you have breath in your lungs, whether you're in the room or you're sitting somewhere right now watching this, you have opportunity not to commit that sin. I believe if Judas had gone back to Jesus, he would have been forgiven. He just never went. Because there is no sin that Jesus cannot forgive. So whatever you're believing right now, just recognize it as a lie from Satan. You have not committed a sin that the, the blood of Jesus is not strong enough to wash clean. You just got to believe that he loves you. You got to believe that the power of the blood of Christ is enough. There's a baptistry on this stage. And it's here every week for one purpose. 
It's a chance for you to declare your faith in Jesus and to, get, to have a tangible symbol of all your sins being washed away. You go under the water. It's as if the water's washing every sin away. And you come out of the water and you are new and you are clean because of Christ. There are some of you here, I know it. And you need to take that step of faith today, to be made clean in Christ as he forgives your sins. Now, if there's some of you watching online, you live close, you may need to get your, your better clothes on, come over here and get baptized today. I'm serious. If you need to do that, you get ready now and you come. If you're in the room and today the Lord is calling you to respond, to find forgiveness in Christ, we'll have prayer team members. We have counselors who will just talk and make sure you understand the gospel. We have a t-shirt you can change into. We have shorts you can put on. And before you leave this building today, you can experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and new life in him today. You just got to come. I'm going to invite you all to stand up right now. I'm going to invite the prayer team members to come spread around the front. If today you need prayer, I'm inviting you to come forward to find one of us. Remember the Father, he gave his son up for you. He'll meet your needs. You got to come ask. If today you're saying, I need forgiveness for my sins in Jesus Christ, I'm ready to believe that God can forgive me. And I want, I want to receive that today. You come let us know. We'll counsel with you. We'll make sure you understand the gospel. And then today can be your day. And if you need to grab one of the crosses because you're willing to wear this for the rest of the Lenten season until the Good Friday service every day, humbly knowing what it signifies, I'll invite you to one of the tables to grab the cross. Keep worshiping the Lord as you do so. And we'll wait until the Lord says we're done with this time. But you move as you need to.